Open your Bibles to the letter of 1 John as we study, uh, continue our study of the epistle of 1 John. John chapter 1. Before we get into our study this morning, let's uh, just pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Our Lord, our God, we have just sung of the, the glory of you as our Redeemer, and that we have this great high priest, this great advocate who is on high to plead our case on whose name, on whose uh, cross, Lord, our names are written by his blood. Oh, Lord God, help us to learn more about you today and your will for our lives, that we would embrace it and live in it. Help us to walk in the light, Lord God, to be people who walk in the light and who are confessing, Lord, as we fall into sin. Lord, we just thank you that you forgive and your cleanse washes us uh, totally clean from all unrighteousness. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So this morning, our study in 1 John finds us in beginning chapter 2, where John begins to talk about our advocate with the Father. Now, in, in John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10, the verses we've been looking at previously, John has proclaimed the message that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. And in the verses after that, he in verses uh, 6 and through 10, he talks about some profound implications of that main central truth that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. One implication is that that it is impossible for someone to walk in the darkness and have fellowship with God. It's just simply inconceivable, impossible. Those who walk in the light are the ones that have fellowship with one another and with God. And they are the ones whom the blood of Jesus covers and cleanses from all their sins. Walking in the light should not be thought of, John tells us, as a state of, of perfection, since that would require us to deny our sinful nature. And if we deny our sinful nature, then we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we deny that we have not sinned, John tells us, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. So no, the the way to to walk in the truth is definitely not to pretend to be in any kind of state of perfection. Walking in the light requires embracing the truth of what God's word says about us. And walking in the light means that those who walk in the light confess their sins as they commit them and trust in the faithful and righteous God to forgive them their sins and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. So this morning, I want you to help us. I want to help us understand the the tension of which John writes this letter. On the one hand, John writes that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Remember, nothing, not not a single little trace, not a molecule. This means that those who walk in the darkness cannot have fellowship with Him, as I've already already said. Stated another way, those who have sin cannot have fellowship with God. Those who sin cannot have fellowship with God. 
So our only hope of having fellowship with God is by confessing our sins, turning away from our sins, and trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That, that cleansing from all unrighteousness is extremely important, for that is required for fellowship with God. Remember, the truth is, God has no fellowship at all with darkness. Keep this in mind, that no one will enter heaven partially cleansed. No one. Not a single one. This is, a side, this is the one side of the theological tension that John writes. He knows this. On the other hand, John knows that no person here on earth is made perfect while here on earth. The perfection is something that comes later. He's already sort of addressed this by the way of uh, in, the, in verses 8 and 10 in these denials that he talked about. If we deny that we have a sin nature, if we deny that we have sinned, and he walks us through the logical path uh, of that. So he recognizes that that there is, on the one hand, the idea that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And on the other hand, there is a tension that no one here on earth is perfect. So John is setting up for us a, a tension that can only be resolved one way. How is it that a God who is perfect can have fellowship with people who are not, even here on earth? How are we, as people who love God and want to follow Him, yet still sin, how are we to have fellowship with the holy God? How does a God, holy like He is, have fellowship with people like us without compromise? Well, in our passage today, we're going to see John answer that question. He, he answers the dilemma by pointing us to our advocate with the Father. It is only through our advocate with the Father that we can be assured of our fellowship with the Father. Let's read John chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. John begins by saying this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you would, may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Beloved, John writes to us this morning to focus our attention on our advocate with the Father so that we can be assured of our fellowship with him. He writes to focus our attention on our advocate with the Father. John begins in verse 1 by addressing what I'll highlighting the need for an advocate. So this morning in our, our message, we'll be looking at the need for an advocate, looking at the characteristics of our advocate, and then later we'll be looking at the remedy of the advocate. So right now we're going to look at the need for an advocate. Why do we need an advocate? It's sort of set up by the dilemma that I raised in the introduction. But let's walk through this, what John says. He begins by saying, my little children. This is not a put-down phrase. This is a term of endearment 
which shows that the Apostle John is in an aged condition when he is writing this. He is much older in years and in faith than those to whom he writes. It also shows us that he had a close relationship with them. This isn't some feigned um, tool of an author to try to manipulate people. He is being earnest and he is expressing his love as well as the love of the Father towards these recipients of the letter. It shows us John's love and compassion for those to whom he wrote. And I think it also shows the fact that he considers them to be his spiritual children. Not that he led each and every one of them to Christ and and to faith, that's likely not the case. But he was the, the last remaining apostle and he had a shepherd's heart. And his desire was to shepherd these spiritual children to walk in the ways of the Lord, to walk in the light, uh, to honor and glorify Him. So he writes them uh, with that in mind by addressing them as his little children. And notice that John says, I am writing these things. Compare that with verse 4 of chapter 1 where he says, these things we write. So in chapter 4, he's speaking on behalf of all of the apostles as an apostolic witness, here it's very personalized. He is thinking of them, probably by name for the ones that he knows by name. And he is saying, my little children, I, as your spiritual father, I am writing these things to you. And what does the little phrase, these things, refer to? Well, in the context... It it seems best to understand these things as the things that we've been looking at from chapter 1 in verses 5 to 10 in in specific context. And and the reason uh, for that is that in verses 5 to 10, as I've been explaining, John declares that that God is light and in him there is no fellowship, uh, in him there's no darkness at all and, and darkness does not have fellowship with light at all. Not one single ounce or iota. And so John is, is going to launch from those truths with, with a, um, a sense of that God cannot have fellowship with those who are in darkness. And so he wants his children to understand that they are not to sin. And that's what he leads into. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. All of us is setting them up, setting us up to see our need of an advocate. John is writing these things to you that you may not sin. Now, why would John need to write this? Why would he need to write this? Well, one reason is that it's easy for people, including the recipients of his letter, to misunderstand what John has said in verses 5 to 10. Some people might reason that sin is an acceptable condition in the life of the believer. Why? Because we've already said. John says you can't deny your sin. So if you can't deny it, then it's uh, just, just the way it is. It's just part of being human, and we're human, so there's no avoiding it. And as D. Edmund Hebert explains, they might think this way. If sin is a characteristic of believers, and forgiveness is freely available... John's readers might be prone to conclude this, 
what wrote John, I mean, sorry, what Paul says in Romans 6 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Unquote. And many people of that time, there's that danger that they would misinterpret John's words in that way, and many people take take the scriptures that way today. They misinterpret the scriptures. They say, no, grace abounds. Grace abounds, which we know that it does. But they do that in a way that it, they discard holiness and the whole concept of holiness. And so John writes clearly to state this purpose that you may not sin, to use the translation of the New American Standard Bible but, but literally, it's, he's saying this, my little children, these things I write to you, I am writing these things to you so that sin, you may not sin. He's saying not you may not, but that you sin not. And, and while the, the English wording, if you say, I'm writing these things that you sin not, it doesn't really sound as nice and smooth in English, but it helps bring the emphasis out. Whereas when we add the word may in there, it kind of softens it. John's writing that we would not sin, period. Not even one sin. John, that's unreasonable. But he's, he, what he's doing is he's saying, though sin is something we cannot deny, we must never accept it as being consistent with the life of God. And it is so easy for us to do that, isn't it? It's so easy for us to become comfortable with the idea of sin in our own lives. We're much better about picking out sin in other people's lives. Have you noticed that? But he's he's driving this home to you. Think about your life and how easy it is for you to excuse and rationalize your own sin. But John writes these things that you sin not. Don't let the idea that that forget that confession brings forgiveness give you an excuse to go run into sin. If you do that, truly you misunderstand much of scripture and you misunderstand the gospel and yet we have all been guilty of it, of rationalizing it saying, well, God will forgive me. And we let that blessed truth and the promise of forgiveness justify our sin. And when we do that, we run along with Satan and believing the lie and twisting something that God intended for good and turning it into something evil. Do you know that's what we do? When we take, we use that kind of rational thought, we take the gospel which was given for good and we turn it into evil as an excuse to go do what we want to do. Don't miss what John is saying here. No act of sin is consistent with a life of fellowship with God. No, not one. And I don't just mean the external acts. I'm talking about as you think and what you think. John is in complete alignment with the rest of Scripture on this point. John's not not making this stuff up. For example, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 12, he says this, he commands, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. So the same idea is found in Paul. Well, what about Peter? Well, Peter brings us a very similar command. 
Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he says this, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Right? That's the same idea. Not one. Not one sin. Not one thought. Not one deed. And, and Peter grounds it in the command found in the Old Testament. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You see, John doesn't like make up theology. He's just deriving the logical conclusion of the theology of the Old Testament bringing out. Since God is holy, he can have no fellowship with someone who's not holy. John just words it differently. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God has no toleration for sin, even in his people. But what about Jesus? Did Jesus say anything about this? Well, in rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees, he said this, For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we in our minds, we know how hypocritical the Pharisees were, and so we tend to like, put their righteousness like, way down there. But I'm telling you, if you were at living at the time, you would have looked up to the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were the apparently righteous people. They were the leaders. They were the spiritual leaders. They were the pastors of the, of the, of the flock. And, and the problem with theirs is theirs was just merely external. Whereas inwardly, they were rotten and filthy. That's what Jesus condemned them. But, but outwardly, you probably could not have found anything wrong with them. You could have not lobbied any accusation against them. So our outward righteousness, how we live today, probably would not match up with that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So why am I bringing this to your attention? Because John writes that we sin not. We cannot tolerate it. Now, by way of reminder, I want us to, to go back to a basic idea and, and, and question, answer, to answer the question, that is this, what is sin? You know, without doing a whole treatise on this, I just want to remind us, what is sin? Well, we'll see later, but I want to bring to your attention now that 1 John 3, 4 summarizes sin as lawlessness. Just lawlessness, just living as if there is no law, there is no God. But we can summarize sin otherwise, other ways. Sin is falling short of the glory of God. Or put it another way, sin is not living for His glory. So anytime you're living, doing what you want to do and not even giving consideration to what God wants, that's sin. Sin is failing to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. God's not a compatible God. What I mean by that is He's not compatible with other interests. He says, I want your whole heart or none of it. I will not have half of it. So sin is only loving God partially. Yeah, God, I love you when it's convenient, when it's not too hard, or when I don't have to be embarrassed over the, oh, the cross thing and sins. No, he, he's a God that wants all of you. Well, sin is also failing to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's another way that God looks at sin. When we simply fail to love others who are around us in the same way we love ourselves. Another way to think about sin is doubting God. 
When we live in a way where we doubt God and doubt His Word, it is sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Another way we could summarize sin is this. Sin is doing anything condemned in Scripture. Or the other way, it's not doing something commanded in Scripture. And you know, God works through an, through a, an agent in us called our conscience. And sometimes our conscience is not well informed. But mark this, disobeying your conscience is sin. Anytime you disobey your conscience, even if your conscience is not well informed by Scripture, it's sin. If you think something is sinful and you do it, it is, it is a sin against God, even if God's Word doesn't label that particular thing as sin. Sin in, it can be described this way. Sin is being governed by desires rather than by truth. So this is not an exhaustive study of sin, but I, I think it's important for us to, to remind ourselves what sin is in these general sweeping terms, because we tend to think of sin as like, well, that's the, you know, the homosexual's problem, or that's the atheist's problem, you know, and while those are sins, our bigger problem with sin within our community isn't, aren't those things. Within your home, what, what do you wrestle with? You put it in those broad categories and you see how we sin so frequently in our own lives. And yet John writes that we may not sin, that we sin not. Why does he exhort us to sin not when, we, when he knows? He was not exempt from this. He knows the battle with sin. He knows his own failings. Even as an aged apostle, here he was the last remaining apostle, and he was not made perfect yet. He still sinned, now less than he did as a young man walking the face of the earth following Christ. Why did he write so the sin not? Well, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones provides a helpful listing of, of why John writes to sin not. And, and essentially, this is a sin. This is more of a list of, of not why John wrote, but in general, why does Scripture command us not to sin? And I just want to walk through this list. He gives eight of them. Sin, first of all, sin is something condemned and hated by God. Use that strong language. It's not only condemned, but it's hated by God. Something which is utterly opposed to Him and His divine nature, His divine and holy nature. So how are we, who have been redeemed by God's love and say we love Him, to engage in things that are hated by God and which are opposed to Him? So that's the first thing. Sin is something condemned and hated by God. Secondly, sin is wrong in and of itself. That is, it's of an evil nature. And it's important that we should look upon sin objectively like this. We need to see its ugliness and its foulness. Look at all the misery and wretchedness it produces. Look at all the havoc that it makes. It is wrong in and of itself. It is one of those things that is evil. Sin is evil and wrong. And as his people, we should not engage in that which is evil. Thirdly, sin is the terrible and foul thing that caused such suffering to my blessed Lord. 
Sin is terrible, and it's the thing that caused such suffering to our blessed Lord. Christ died because of sin. He suffered because of sin. So are we to go rejoice and have fun in the very thing that caused our our Lord's death? Fourthly, sin is dishonoring to the gospel, to its claims, and to its power. We're told in Scripture to adorn the doctrine of Christ our Lord. That is, to adorn the gospel with our lives. Adorn means to put on. Our lives are to be a reflection of the gospel, of the glory of the gospel. But when we sin, we dishonor the gospel. We dishonor the claims of the gospel. And we deny the power of the gospel. Fifthly, sin is utterly inconsistent with our profession as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. We become hypocrites. Sixth, sin leads always to an evil conscience. When men and women sin, they are under a sense of condemnation. That's, that's the conscience working. And it will rob you of happiness and joy and give you a sense of condemnation. So John writes to help us, to help his spiritual children, by application that's us, to avoid sin for these reasons. And and upon that, we can add this. Sin will always lead to doubts. Unless sin is is confessed, a a sin that that you pursue will lead to doubts. And with time, it will make you uncertain of your relationship with God. Think about your own past and your struggle with sin, and it is those times where you have pursued sin that shortly thereafter you question whether you're even saved or not. And lastly, but surely not exhaustively, Martin Lloyd-Jones adds this, sin always leads, ultimately, to a sense of utter hopelessness. And he's speaking of those who continue in sin. People in that state and condition may sometimes sin for so long that they feel they can have nothing, that they can do nothing, and they have this sense of devastation and of being forsaken. They're simply hopeless. And sometimes Christians can be caught in this, and they shipwreck their own souls. So to help readers avoid all this, John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you sin not. We should never let ourselves become complacent with, our, with sin in our lives. That is one of the great dangers, I think, of our time. There were times in the past where, where legalism, perhaps, was the greatest danger. But that is not the greatest danger of our times, though the danger still lurks. The greatest danger in our times is that we would become complacent with sin. The world is trying to press us into a certain mold. That's why Paul writes in, in Romans chapter 12, verse, verses 1 and 2, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need that transformation. Otherwise, we're going to be conformed to the thinking of the world. And beloved, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, it gives you an example of how a church, even with an apostle teaching it, can become conformed to the world. We are not immune to this. The world is trying to press us into its mold a certain way of thinking. The world wants to take the things of God and turn them upside down. 
The world wants to take something that God says is good and make it bad. And it wants to take something that God labels as bad and make it good. The world today wants to take the things that are shunned in, in, uh, in Scripture and to celebrate them. And, and Christians, as Christians, we are not immune from this pressure of the world. But this really isn't a new situation. God's not surprised by it. Christians are no more immune to the pressures of sin than the nation of Israel was to the pressures of the pagan nations around them in the, that we see in the Old Testament. Listen as I read Isaiah 5, verses 20 to 25, though written many, many, many years ago. It really describes, uh, could describe our culture today, I think is an, is an apt description. Through, through the prophet, God says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Think about that last statement. Who justify the wicked and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Sound like today? How does the Lord respond to this? Verse 24 tells us, Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so the root will become like rot and their blossom will blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people, and he has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. For all this, for all this his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. Beloved, I point this out to say that what is true in the Old Testament is true today, and that God is holy and he will not tolerate sin in his people. He's not corruptible. You can't give him a bribe. He will not tolerate sin in his people. And John knows this. And so he says, dear children, I am writing these things that you sin not. And yet we see this, this small concession In the middle of verse 2, and if anyone sins. Really, I think that should be better translated, but if anyone sins. There is a contrast there. It's not a strong contrast. And so the word there uh, is translated and. but But there is a contrast going on. Don't miss that. The standard is that we would not sin. But though John writes as an idealist, and rightfully so, that that the spiritual children of God not sin, he also writes as a realist, for he knows himself. He knows his own frame. And so he writes, if anyone sins. Our sin, even as children of God, cannot be overlooked. 
and, and causes a disruption in our relationship with God. As I said, God will not overlook sin, even the sin in our own lives. So, so what are we to do? Well, one response is we can kind of adjust to the societal norms of our time and just kind of minimize sin. We can redefine it, say it's not so bad. Or we can minimize it in another way by saying, well, Christ died for it. It's all covered under his blood. So, you know, it doesn't really matter if I sin because Christ bore the full wrath of my sin on the cross. And so all that's paid for. And so it it doesn't really matter. So there's two different ways to minimize sin there. So one way to deal with this is just kind of minimize it in your head. Get it out of your head and not think about it. The other way is despair. So are we to minimize our sin? Certainly not. Are we to despair, to fall into despair and depression because we're not perfect and we're expected to be perfect, but we're not perfect? And, and so we see no hope at all and fall into depression and fall into despair? Well, the answer to both those questions is no. We are not to minimize our sin and we are not to fall into despair. I think a good, good there, there are many theological truths that must be kept in tension in Scripture. We don't have time to explore more of them. But these, these things must be kept in tension. That's these truths. The truth is that we, that we must not sin at the same time, recognize that we cannot deny our sin. We cannot fall into despair. The threading the line between these theological um, polar opposites, really, in some ways, is illustrated for us, um, I think, by imagining a road in which there are hazards on either side of that narrow road. When we, we moved to Canada many years ago, um, it was winter time, and, and um, we had made it through the kind of the really cold wintry sections and had gotten to Washington, and all of a sudden there was this massive warm-up. And with this massive warm-up meant there were, they had to close roads because the avalanches could um, just collapse. It was raining, it warmed up, and it was raining. And so it's, it's a pretty uh, common thing in, in uh, Washington, the state of Washington, and some places in British Columbia, where they'll get really cold weather, but then it'll warm up and start raining. And so we were in that phase. So we finally got through the mountains and got into British Columbia and the area close to where we were going to minister to. And that area is a, a farmland, largely drained by the use of canals. So um, many of the immigrants, uh, some of them uh, coming with Dutch Reformed uh, kind of character from Holland, um, came and they taught them how to drain that area. So that area does flood, but they've, they've used these canals to drain the land so that it's good farmland and is very rich farmland. But it can flood. And so at a time when we were there, uh, we were driving through this farmland and you really couldn't see that there was any land. There was so much water everywhere. And on one side of these, the narrow country road, you had a drainage ditch. Now, we didn't know at the time how deep that ditch was, right? Later, when the water went down in the summertime, when it stopped raining and, and everything kind of drained away, you could see how deep it is. But those drainage ditches are deep enough that your car could go in there and they wouldn't see you, okay? They're deep. So you have this deep drainage ditch of water on one side, and on the other side, it also looks like a lake. Now, it's a field, but the field is a little bit lower than the road, 
and it's just a muddy mess. And if you go onto that side of the road, you're not getting out either. Now, you won't sink down like the other, but you're going to get wet and you're going to get stuck. So it gives us an illustration of, of these two responses we can have to what John is telling us. Despair on one side will set you off the track of spiritual growth, and, and minimizing your sin will, sit, will put you into a ditch from which it will be very, very difficult to recover. You certainly won't. Um, you, I'm not saying you'll lose your salvation, but I'm saying you will shipwreck your faith uh, if you stay there and keep pursuing, just minimizing your sin. So John has us in a situation where he, he says, little children, I write these things that you sin not. And yet he says, but if anyone sins, he introduces this idea. We have an advocate with the Father. Now I want to introduce this to you, and we're going to f- fill it out more in, a, in another message. But I want you to see this morning, not only the need of an advocate, I want you to see the gift of an advocate. The gift of an advocate with the Father. Now, now what is this advocate? What is the role of an advocate? Well, the word advocate is a translation of the Greek word parakletos. I read that to you because it's the word paraclete. We've heard that before in our study of the Gospel of John. What is paraclete? Well, it's, it's the, the word for helper or translated helper in John chapter 14. So in John 14, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit paraclete. John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. John 14, 16, Jesus says this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another Helper that he may be with you forever. I think it's significant that in John 14, 16, Jesus says that I will ask the Father and he will give you another Helper. He just doesn't say he will give you a Helper. He will give you another helper, implying that Jesus himself is a paraclete, is a helper to us. And we get to see one way in which Jesus is that here in this passage. As one commentator explains, paraclete is the Greek word that originally literally carried the passive meaning of of one who is called to come alongside one as a helper. One who is called to come to one side as a helper. As the usage of the word expanded, it came to be used of a variety of helping activities. And thus, the word as applied to the Holy Spirit in John 14 and John 15 and 16 is best translated by helper, quote-unquote, a term sufficiently comprehensive to include the varied ways in which the Spirit assists the believer. Here, however, in John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, a specific kind of aid is in view. And the author goes on to explain it. He says, one of the most common uses of the term in extra-biblical Greek was to refer to a helper in a legal trial, not an attorney, but one who appeared in court in behalf of another, a friend of the defendant, called in to testify to the character of the latter. Christ, beloved, is the friend of the defendant that comes before God, the judge, to intercede for the believer who has committed an act of sin. Unquote. That is what he is saying. Christ, by calling Christ 
the, as our advocate. He's saying that Christ is this friend of the defendant who, be, who comes before the judge to intercede for the believer who has committed an act of sin. So that's the reason that the translation advocate, or the, or the word paraclete is translated advocate here versus helper in John 14, 15, and 16. When we sin, our advocate with the Father comes to our side. Now, when we use the word advocate, you probably think of a, a legal sense like the lawyer, but I don't think the word originally meant the, the defense lawyer. Defense lawyers in our time declare innocence, don't they? You know, and the more, the more money you have to get a more powerful and more skillful lawyer, the more innocent you get. Not really, right? It just becomes... The more money you have and the more skilled the defender, the more it looks or it can apparently look to a jury that you're really innocent. But our advocate never declares our innocence. Defense lawyers today excuse behavior. Oh, he was raised in a terrible family. And that's why he, you know, he was abused as a child, and that's why he grew up to be an abuser and a murderer, and et cetera, et cetera, and on goes the line. You've heard that before, this blame shifting. And again, the more, the more expensive a lawyer, the better they are at finding ways to shift blame from behavior, sinful behavior. But our advocate never does that. He never excuses our sin. Our advocate does something far more profound, far more important, as we shall see when we get to verse 2. But to give you a little preview of verse 2, I'd like to quote what Donald Burdick pointed out in his commentary. That the term advocate, as it's used here in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 1, is a parallel term to the term high priest which is applied to Jesus in the epistle to the Hebrews. Both the advocate and the high priest were intercessors on behalf of others. And we'll see in which the particular way in which our advocate intercedes for us when we get to chapter 2. But before we do that, John points us to the characteristics of our advocate. The characteristics of our, attitude, our advocate are seen in the end of verse One, that we have, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The the things that here John was combating against false teaching was this. First, he mentions this advocate as Jesus. This points us to the advocate's humanity. By using the term, the name Jesus, John is, is pointing out that this advocate is truly human. By using the term Christ, John is not just pointing us to the fact that he's the Messiah, but that he is deity himself. He is God's appointed one. So he is best fitted. He is in the place of a mediator. He is both man and God, right? in the perfect place of the advocate. He is also righteous, John tells us. Righteous. Now, now John isn't just saying that Jesus is righteous in his role as an advocate. John is emphasizing the enduring character of our advocate. Jesus is righteous. 
This characteristic is important in the context of 1 John because it emphasizes the characteristic that we lack in the practical sense. What you and I lack, and that's practical holiness. When we sin, we lack that. Christ owns that. He has that. He has that characteristic. We never have to worry about Jesus sinning or losing uh, his holiness. He is righteous. And notice that, that John says that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, with the Father. That phrase, with the Father, is, is written in a way that tells us that, that this advocate has face-to-face communication with the Father, has in, an intimate relationship, has a personal relationship, has a close relationship. And we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that John's suggesting that our advocate, Jesus Christ, has that kind of close relationship with the Father. For Jesus tells us repeatedly in, in the Gospel of John of his unity with the Father. For example, in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And the reaction of the Jewish leaders helps us to not miss the point of what he's saying. The Jewish leaders, John tells us, picked up stones to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So they understood that when Jesus said to them, I and the Father are one, Jesus was claiming to be uh, one with the Father, to be claimed to, to be um, in unity with the Father, and to be to be God Himself. So, as God, Jesus is righteous and has fellowship with the Father, the very thing that we need in an advocate. And Jesus has the qualifications needed to truly help us as our advocate with the Father. Jesus is totally righteous. Jesus has fellowship with the Father. He is the mediator between us and God. 1 Timothy 2, chapter, uh, 2 verse 5 tells us, For there is one man and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at a proper time. So our advocate has the very thing that we need, which is consistent, permanent, enduring holiness and righteousness. Now, beloved, in a sense, this gives us a a principle that applies to many various areas of life, but particularly spiritual growth. Seek help from those who are already where you want to be in the future. Seek help from those who already are where you want to be in the future. Christ already enjoys intimate fellowship with the Father, face-to-face fellowship with the Father. He is the one who can guide you there. But that principle applies in other places as well, in in our spiritual walk. If we're struggling with outbursts of anger... Find a believer who has learned how to be at peace even in trying circumstances and and go learn from them. If you are gripped by the struggle with pornography, find a believer who has learned to say no to this temptation and learn from them. Don't go to someone who is entrapped by the deceitfulness of pornography and expect to get any real help from them. That's what's wrong with so many uh, different kind of uh, self-help groups these days. 
it's a bunch of people who are all struggling with the same thing and they all just share their burdens and really it's quite a discouraging thing because they all keep falling into the same sin. Find the more mature believer who has grown in that area and go find out what helped them and ask them to help you. So as John says, we lack in the matter of this personal enduring holiness and yet that's not an excuse to sin, but it's an excuse to go to our advocate. And John's going to give us Give us some detail of that advocate in verse 2, in which I just, at this point, just want to read to you, and then we'll spend more time on it in another message. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. You see, we have an advocate. We have a need for an advocate. We have the gift of an advocate, And don't let the analogy run amok. What I mean by that is the Father is the one who gives us the advocate. So it's not as if Jesus, being loving and kind, is arguing with a a, a, kind of the Old Testament grumpy God. No, not at all. God who loved us sent us the very thing we need, which is that advocate. So we have the need for the advocate. We have the gift of the advocate. And... That advocate did something very profound. He became the remedy for our needs. We're going to look at the remedy of the advocate next time. The very thing that we need. So beloved, in conclusion for this morning, avoid the hazards of complacency towards sin in your own life on the one hand and the despair of your sin on the other by keeping your eyes focused on Christ, day by day, moment by moment, confessing your sins so that in his faithfulness, he can forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we want to thank you for being our advocate. Thank you that you give us an advocate who can transform us, can give us his righteousness, and can lead us in the ways of righteousness so that as you complete what you have begun, we will one day stand with you in perfection. And we will one day be with you without spot or any wrinkle, not just looking at our justification, but also looking at our lives practically. And we look forward to that day, O oh Lord. And I just ask that you would, you would help us, Lord, not to grow complacent with our sin. And that you'd also help us not to despair. Satan would like us to do either one of those. But help us, Lord God, to turn to you, to trust you for the forgiveness of our sins. And to carry us, Lord, through sanctification. And to be our advocate with the Father. And uh, Lord, just grow us in our understanding of this passage. It's in your name we pray. Amen.